Welcome to War Stories. I'm Preston Stewart, and this is a show where we talk about America's military history through the lens of individual acts of heroism and valor. Enjoy. Today we have the story of two Marines. Two Marines that didn't know each other, but would be working alongside each other during a critical few seconds in Ramadi, Iraq in 2008. So we're going to talk about the story of Lance Corporal's Jordan Herter and Jonathan Yale. Now, stepping back for a minute to talk about the the battlefield here, Ramadi is technically in central Iraq, but it's west of Baghdad. So if you, you know, the major city, the capital of Iraq, you have Baghdad and you move west You'll hit Fallujah after about 30 miles. Another 30 miles past Fallujah, you'll hit Ramadi. If you continue west from Ramadi, you'll eventually, you'll travel through the Euphrates River Valley and end up in Syria. In turn, Ramadi has been an important city for a long time, not just since the 2003 war, but to zero in on kind of why it's been important for the last, you know, 15 plus years. And especially during the window we're going to talk about. There was a major foreign fighter flow into Iraq for quite a bit of the war, especially in this window, 2000, really 2004 to 2007, eight, there were a lot of foreign fighters moving into Iraq and the major transportation route was through Syria, through this Euphrates river Valley into Ramadi, into Fallujah, into Ramadi, into Fallujah, and then into Baghdad. And across the country, but this was a major, major hub. And part of the reason there is a lot of the foreign fighters coming into Iraq were Sunni. And Ramadi, Fallujah, Anbar province, really in the western part of Iraq, is heavily Sunni. So there was a degree of, I guess a better way to say it is, more likely to find local support, especially as sectarian violence kicked off and Iraq kind of devolved into a more of a you know, civil war, if you will. So... U.S. forces from the get-go had units in Western Iraq, but the Al-Qaeda presence, the eventually Islamic State presence, and and just the insurgency grew really, really strong in Anbar, especially in Ramadi, especially in Fallujah. So in 2000, you know, there's a couple major, major battles in Fallujah. There's also one really big battle in Ramadi in 2006. There would have been, in 2006, Army, Marine, Navy SEAL, a lot of different special operations units took about an eight-month battle that was, I mean, it was devastating. It, it destroyed a lot of Ramadi. It almost, I think, nearly 100 U.S. service members were killed and an estimated 1,000 enemy fighters were killed. So Ramadi's been, it's a tough spot. There's just enough local support to where the U.S. had throughout the Iraq war a challenge really, really wresting control from the insurgency entirely, where other parts of the country is a little more attainable. Following the Battle of Ramadi in 2006, or I guess technically that's the second Battle of Ramadi, but in literature you'll tend to see it just referred to as the Battle of Ramadi, but the 2006 battle, one of the things that was undertaken by U.S. and Iraqi forces was the establishment of outposts all around the city. And the idea being, again, we're in a war for the people. We're 
We're trying to win local support, trying to keep out these insurgent forces or for, especially foreign forces. Al-Qaeda was heavily uh, foreign forces at this point in the war. So we'd establish these outposts across the city that would house smaller units. So instead of the American and Iraqi units sitting back on major bases with 5, 10, 20,000 at a time where they have all of their helicopters and all of their tanks, and armored vehicles and trucks, they were dispersed across the city. It's a strategy. It's a risky strategy. It, you know, there's pros and cons, but for one, they're more susceptible to attack because there aren't 40 forts throughout Ramadi. It means you have to take over a compound and do with you know the best you've got. But at the same time, if you can be around the civilian population, maybe you know those ties become stronger, the bonds become stronger, and, and you're less likely to experience attack. So it's a strategy. In, in parts of Iraq, it was very successful. In other parts, it was a challenge from the get-go. Um, nonetheless, that's what we're dealing with in Ramadi by about 2000, well, since 2006, but in 2008, the time we're going to talk about here. So in April of 2008, at an outpost in Ramadi, there's a transition going on. And the, the military today, or how we fought the Iraq and Afghanistan wars, is that we've rotated entire units. In the past, you know, Vietnam is a really good example. We would deploy units to a combat zone and then rotate people. So somebody would go spend nine months a year, 15 months, whatever it is, with their unit in Vietnam, say, and there would just be this constant flow of people coming and going, but technically the unit was there the whole time. So there were units that were in Vietnam for seven plus years. There weren't people in Vietnam necessarily for seven years in a row. They would just come and go. We've done that differently in Iraq and Afghanistan, where it's the units that rotate in and out. What that means then is a unit gets to train as a group, prepare for deployment, go to war together, and then come back together to re-enter the training cycle for if they win and if they need to go back. On the ground, what that means then is there's a lot of transitions. And there's been commentary in the past about, you know, in a 10-year window, the United States is essentially fighting 10 one-year wars because of these transitions. So it's not foolproof by any means. But down at the lowest level, what you end up doing during these transitions is, I mean, it makes a lot of sense. The new unit comes in, they don't know anything. Um especially around the specific area of operations you're working in. They don't know the enemy tactics per se. Um, they're certainly well-trained, but in terms of the, you know, what's the layout of the, what do the city blocks look like in Ramadi? Which houses do you need to avoid in Ramadi? Which neighborhoods are more friendly than others? That's all the stuff they're going to learn on the ground. And one of the ways we go about doing that is we, we pair up essentially. There are terms called left seat ride, right seat ride. And, and you'll, you know, you start with, let's say it's a platoon of, of 40 Marines, 40 soldiers, you might swap out five and bring in five new guys, maybe just the leaders. And you do that for a week. Then you bring in 10 more or, or you, know, you get up to 20 to where it's 50, 50. And then eventually it's just the old leaders with the new unit kind of advising. And then the transition happens. And sometimes this happens over the course of two or three weeks. It's very well planned, very deliberate. Other times it's kind of hasty. Like they just show up and it's, Hey, we got to take, we got to take over tomorrow. You guys are, are leaving, but nonetheless, there's a transition period in there. And it's always, it's always an interesting period because everybody that's in a totally different mindsets, you have guys coming in that are, they're anxious, they're nervous, they're excited. Then you have guys that are leaving that want to get home and they're tired. 
And um, you put these people side by side in some of these difficult situations and it makes for some unique environments. But what's happening in April in Ramadi, Iraq is Lance Corporal Jordan Herder and his unit, 1st Battalion, 9th Marines are arriving. They're coming into country to start their deployment. On the other side, they're replacing the 2nd Battalion, 8th Marines. That's where Lance Corporal Jonathan Yale is assigned. So these two are paired together on April 22nd for a guard position. There's there's an entry control point, a gate to the front of this American outpost in Ramadi. And these two get paired up. So ideally, Yale is going to be teaching Herder, here's what we do, here's what we look for, so on and so forth. So they're going to be in the guard post together. The guard post is situated just outside the main gate for this compound. So it's not necessarily within the compound. It's just a little bit outside um, so they can stop traffic as it's coming in. And then the entrance to the outpost is going to have what's called a serpentine leading up to it. And it's a series of barriers that requires vehicles to slow down to make sharp turns. So they can be almost 90 degree turns or more, or well, more than 90 degree turns. And the idea is you don't want vehicles approaching the position at any sort of speed. You want to have a little, you know, notice, be able to watch them come in, maybe stop them a ways out. So these serpentines are offset barriers that for, you know, it's an S serpentine because it kind of looks like a snake from above and the vehicles have to weave through this slowly as they approach the guard tower. Now, one of the reasons that, I mean, this has been, serpentines have been common practice for a long time, but one of the reasons they became important in Iraq is the use of vehicle-borne improvised explosive devices or vehicle-borne suicide attacks became a thing, became a, a very real threat. And insurgents would drive these vehicles right up to the front gate or wherever they could detonate it. And in a lot of cases that would open a gap for enemy fighters to come in and, and storm the base. Or they could just try to drive it directly in and maybe park it next to a building where Americans are sleeping. So the outpost in Ramadi is going to be at risk of this. From every, Everybody knows that. Every day, that's a risk. And Herder and Yale are on April 22nd stationed at the front gate. One of the things they're going to be defending against is this possibility. As they are manning their guard post, a truck comes around the corner at high speed. Now, as you're looking for these things, there's certain ways that you might be tipped off to the intentions of the vehicle. There's people drive erratically in every country, every day. Very few people turn towards an American base as fast as they can, driving recklessly through a serpentine. You don't usually make that mistake accidentally. Yale and Herder recognize right away that this truck barreling at them as fast as it can go is a suicide attacker hell bent on killing as many Americans and Iraqis inside that base as possible. From the time the truck turns the corner and they can see it for the first time, it's a, you know, remember it's an urban environment. So it's not as though they can see this coming from miles and miles away from the time the truck turns the corner and starts heading down the serpentine. They have less than six seconds until it reaches their position, six seconds. So, when we start talking split second decisions, recognize this entire engagement from, from it's maybe a boring guard shift and they're just bantering back and forth to the end of this incident that we're going to talk about is six seconds. The truck turns the corner. 
And very quickly, Herter and Yale recognize what it is. As soon as that happens, you start to see Iraqi guards run away. They also know what's happening. This isn't the first time a suicide attacker has detonated a big truck. And it's a truck, which means that there's a lot of explosives in that. The blast is going to be really big. So some of the Iraqi guards take off. Herder and Yale step forward, step towards the truck that's driving at them. And this is important because the gate that they are guarding is a gate, but it's not what you'd think of today. If you were going to drive by a government building, you're going to see much stronger um, gate protections than these guys have. Remember, they're just taking over whatever they can to use as an outpost. This truck coming full speed could have rammed right through that gate. So it's up to these two Marines if they're going to stop this truck. Six seconds. Trucks comes around the corner. They step forward and begin firing. They're firing into the windshield, trying to kill the driver to stop him as far back as they can. They continue firing and continue to move forward as they engage. The truck continues moving through the serpentines. And as it nears their position, comes to a halt. It stopped just feet from the Marines position as they are continuing to engage the driver. Now, these two had a choice. Yale and Herder had a choice. They, they're people. They, they know that danger is approaching and they could have ducked behind their sandbags, waited for the explosion. They could have done what the Iraqi guards did and run away. It's, it's, could have saved their own lives. They had the opportunity. They were now one thing of note, nobody else knew this truck was coming except for the people at the gate. So they could have run. They were the only people really in that base that had an idea that this devastating attack was about to unfold. But instead, they leaned in. Instead, they moved forward. Instead, they kept engaging. And as they were doing so, they stopped the driver. They stopped the truck, just feet in front of their position. But as the driver dies, he detonates the truck, detonates the bomb. It's a 2,000, it's estimated to be a 2,000 pound bomb. It's huge. And it is feet away from these two Marines. The blast kills them instantly, levels buildings in multiple directions, leaves a one meter crater in the ground. It throws, I want to say, I read that it threw the engine block like 200 feet. It was a massive blast. But because of where that blast happened, outside the gate, away from the buildings where there were Americans sleeping and training and working, that blast, that blast killed two Marines, Lance Corporals Jordan Herder and Lance Corporal Jonathan Yale. It didn't get through to the other 50 that would have been an easy target had those two stepped away. For their actions that day, for standing their ground and stopping this deadly attack that could have killed over 50 Marines, Lance Corporal Jordan Herder and Lance Corporal Jonathan Yale would be awarded posthumously the Navy Cross. There's some great retelling of these, this story on um, out there on the internet. It's worth looking up. And there is, when the investigation kicked off to see what happened after the fact, they, the, um, 
some commanders in the region went down to the site and had to talk to Iraqis. Remember, nobody knew what was happening. Nobody knew what was happening. There wasn't anybody else there. The only people in the guard tower had, had died. And some of the Iraqis were quoted as saying, no, no sane person would have stayed and fought. No, nobody does that. Nobody stands in front of a 2,000 pound suicide truck and says, stop. They run. They then found that there were video cameras around the base. And the act of Herder and Yale was caught on camera to a degree. It's, it's, a, it's an odd angle, but the angle shows the truck barreling down. It shows the split second decision. Then you can see the two Marines blasted away before the truck detonates, which throws a security camera offline. But I will, uh, I'll put a link to some of that in the notes here. But incredible story of two Marines that didn't know each other. Um, you know, one learning how to fight in Ramadi and the other days away from going home, but stepping forward, leaning in, sacrificing themselves to save at least 50 of their brothers. Hey, thanks for listening to War Stories. If you get a chance, it'd mean an awful lot if you could head over to Apple or Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcast and leave a review. It helps others to, to find the show. But thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time.